Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I want to start again this morning in Revelation chapter 12. With all the things that are going on around us, it's good for us to remind ourselves of what's really happening. What's the motivation behind the things that are taking place in the world that we're living in today? And what's really going on? I'm going to start in verse 7, Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. The whole chapter is talking about the devil and his attempts to defeat the family of God. So in verse 7 it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And they prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is to come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Folks, notice the, the connection between salvation, strength, and the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he hath but a short time. That thrills me every time I read it. The devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knows that he has but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away in the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, folks, these few scriptures here reference something specific to Israel during the tribulation period and the attack that the devil makes against Israel. But at, just after the three-and-a-half-year mark to the halfway point of the tribulation, we see it from the scriptures that there's a great multitude in heaven that wasn't there before. And that great multitude is described as mostly Jewish followers or Jewish disciples. And so this is talking about uh, some of the things that will happen during the tribulation period of time. Verse 17, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So you can see it's talking about a war against the, her, uh, the church, not just against Israel. Now, I want to take a little bit more time with these verses that we have in the past and, uh, and identify some things for us to see. Let's back up again to um, verse 10. Let's read it again. And I heard a loud voice saying, In heaven now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ. I want you to notice that the position that God has established for the church is one of victory. 
Now, here where it says the connection identifies uh, salvation, we know that's being born again. Strength. Our strength is provided by the word of God in the name of Jesus. And then it mentions the kingdom of our God. Now, Jesus gave us the definition of the kingdom of God. You remember in, uh, uh, well, Mark chapter 6 tells us, but then some of the other gospels do too. There was a time when the disciples came to Jesus and said, John taught his disciples to pray. Why don't you teach us to pray? And Jesus gives them what is, uh, what is known throughout the church, the world, uh, the church world, as the Lord's Prayer. But really it's the disciples' prayer. Because he talks about certain things and praying for certain things then that have already taken place for us so that it wouldn't do us any good to pray what they prayed. You remember how it goes, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Well, the kingdom hadn't come yet. We see that the kingdom of God is associated with and connected with the resurrection of Jesus, the sacrifice of his blood and the resurrection from the grave. So they prayed for the kingdom to come. Now, what are they praying for? Well, as I said before, Jesus gives us the definition. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Folks, the kingdom of God is just the same now as when he first created the earth. You remember he created the earth in six days. He created man at the end of the sixth day period. And he gave man dominion and authority over the earth. Genesis 1.26 says, Let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. In other words, it is an exact duplicate in kind of God himself. And let him have dominion over the work of our hands. Now, when God created the earth at the end of those six days and he made an end of everything that he made and rested on the seventh day, there was nothing that could hurt man. There was nothing that wasn't under the control and authority of man. There was no sickness. There was no disease. There was not even such a thing as thorns on the plants that would grow. A paradise of the greatest degree. Now, why did God make things that way? Because that's who he is. There's no sickness and no disease in heaven. There's nothing that can hurt or harm mankind in heaven. We certainly would accept that God made heaven the way that he wanted things to be, wouldn't he? So here where he makes the earth, before sin enters into the scene, the earth is just an exact duplicate. It's just in the same condition as things are in heaven. Now, we wouldn't question heaven, would we? I mean, for example, does, has, can you imagine anybody getting to heaven and being dissatisfied with the way it is because there are enemies there or battles to fight or any such thing like that? We know that's not how heaven is. We know that heaven is the way that God wants it to be and the way God wants it to be is uh, apart from, separate from, and unaffected by anything related to the devil or his works. That's how God created the earth. That's how he wanted it to be then. And since God never changed it, it has to be the way he wants it to be now. God never changes. There's no variableness in him. Neither shadow of turning. There's not even the, uh, the hint of the possibility that God would want things to be different 
for mankind here on the earth and he wants things to be for him in heaven. He never changes. Well, if he never changes, his will never changes. Can you see that? Well, notice the connection with the kingdom of God to the sacrifice of Jesus and the shedding of his blood. Now has come salvation. Now has come strength. We don't have to wait for strength. We don't have to pray for it. We don't have to hope for it. We have strength now because of the work of Jesus that brought salvation to us. Notice it goes on to say, it shows us how our victory comes. Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Here's our place of victory. Here's our means of overcoming previous verse that we read said that the devil deceives the whole world so if we're overcoming him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony that means we're overcoming deception it means we're overcoming deception now folks what is deception deception is either the hiding or the obscuring of the truth now the devil deceives in just about everything that he does He'll throw a little bit of truth in sometimes to get people, take people off guard. But there are three things specifically that the devil wants to hide from you, the truth that he wants to hide from you. We know for a certainty that the, the antidote for deception is knowledge of the truth. And there are three main areas that the devil wants to obscure truth. He wants to obscure the knowledge of God. He does not want you to know what God is like. He does not want you to know the love of God. He does not want you to know the mercy of God. He does not want you to know the character and the nature of God. So he does his best to obscure the truth. The next thing he doesn't want you to know about is him. He does not want you to know his character, his nature, and his influence, the extent or the boundaries of his influence in the earth. And the third thing he doesn't want you to know about, the third thing that he obscures truth in is he doesn't want you to know about you. He does not want you to know who you are in Christ. He doesn't want you to know the strength of God that's already available to you. He doesn't want you to know about God. He doesn't want you to know the truth about God. He doesn't want you to know the truth about himself and the limits of his power and influence. And he doesn't want you to know about yourself. He does not want you to know the exceeding greatness of the power of God that works in you because you're a believer in Jesus. Now, folks, if you just take those three things, if the devil is successful in those three areas, look how he can hinder the church. So how is he making war on the church? By obscuring the truth, specifically in those three areas. Who God is, who he is, who Satan is, that is, and who you are. But we overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Now, folks, if Jesus had not restored things to their original condition through his death, burial, and resurrection, 
then we would not be able to have victory over the devil. We would have to do what a lot of the church thinks we're doing anyway, and that is just hold out to the end. Just hang on. Someday Jesus is coming back for us. And the picture is that the church that Jesus comes back for will be hanging on by the very skin of their teeth with their fingernails dug in, just holding on tight, hopeful that we can make it to the end. That's not the church Jesus describes. Jesus said that he would build his church upon the knowledge of who he is, the truth of who he is. And the gates of hell would not prevail against it. If you haven't figured it out yet, please let me enlighten you. God is all about victory. He's all in on your victory. But again, notice the principle whereby we overcome him. We overcome him by the words of our mouth. We overcome him by the words of our mouth. What Jesus has accomplished through the shedding of his blood and what we know to be true and act on by the confession of our mouths. Turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 4, please. Mark chapter 4 is the story of Jesus telling the, the parable of the sower sowing the word. And he talks about the different types of ground. We'll refer to it briefly. But I want you to see in verse 11 specifically, the disciples have come to him privately and asked him about this parable. And notice what Jesus said, verse 11. Jesus said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdom of God. In other words, there are things about the kingdom of God that are not readily available or cannot be readily seen. There's a mystery to the kingdom of God. And I, I'll have to tell you, folks, what Jesus describes the kingdom of God to be, again, his definition is where the will of God is done on the earth just like it is in heaven. That truth is obscured to much of the church world. That truth is a mystery that they cannot understand or fail to apply themselves to. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. He says the whole kingdom of God works like this. The principles that he identifies in Mark chapter 4 in this parable of the sower sowing the word may be the most important thing that Jesus said during his earthly ministry. Because without an understanding of this, you'll never be able to tap into the things that Jesus provided for us through the shedding of his blood. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but unto them that are without all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Now think about that. Jesus is saying, I don't want everybody to know this. He's saying, I don't want everybody to know this. Now who does he not want to know this? He keeps the, uh, reserves the knowledge of these things, the truth of these things, for those that are willing to commit themselves to him completely. 
He doesn't want just the average Christian to know about these things so that they can use them at their own will and skirt his plan and purpose for their lives. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. So when it comes to the Pharisees and the scribes, the doctors of the law, he spoke these things in parables so that they would not be readily understood by them. Now anybody, according to the word, if we believe the word to be true, thank God it is. But if we believe the word to be true, then anybody can tap into this by putting the word first place in their lives. But it takes commitment on their part to take hold and to gain this knowledge. To operate in the kingdom of God as God intends for us to. Jesus said unto them, verse 13, know ye not this parable? And how will then you know all parables? There's something about the underlying foundation or the underlying principles of this parable that opens the door to all the others too. The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. No hunger for the things of God whatsoever in this type of people. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 tells us Satan is the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those in this world lest they might receive the glorious light of the gospel. Here's deception. What's the deception? Well, the deception is very simply the idea or the notion that spiritual things are not most important. You've got a lot of the church world that rejoices in their salvation but refuses to go any further in their spiritual walk with God. Now you readily understand the, the degree or the depth of deception involved in that type of thinking. There's nothing more important than spiritual things because everything about this physical realm will one day burn up. It'll pass away. And then the only things that will stand with any worth or any value whatsoever are the things that we did on this earth that furthered the kingdom of God or furthered God's plan in the earth. So this first type of people, this first kind of ground that represents people, the first deception is that spiritual things are not more important than anything else. Because if anybody believes that spiritual things, or if they get a glimpse of the, re the reality of the importance of spiritual things, that creates a spiritual hunger. And that spiritual hunger, when followed on, when acted on, cannot be denied. Jesus said, my people perish for a, a lack of knowledge. Second type of ground is the stony ground. Verse 16, and these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. There's a little bit of hunger there then. And they have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. So they have a little bit of spiritual hunger, but the, the work of the devil is to stir up trouble, affliction, adversity, trouble in their lives, or persecution, people setting themselves against them. And they become deceived because of the persecution or the affliction. 
they turn loose of the word that they started with because it's only brought trouble into their lives. In Numbers chapter 21, it tells us after Israel had uh, refused to go into the promised land, they've spent 39 years in the wilderness. They're just coming to the end of their 40 year of wilderness punishment because they refused to obey God and take the land that he said was theirs. It tells us a story about when they were traveling from one place to another place in the wilderness and they encompassed or had to go around the nation of Edom. And the Bible says that the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. In other words, the way that they had to take, rather than taking a straight shot through the land of Edom, they had to go round about many miles out of their way. And it was tough. The place, the land, the territory that they were wandering through. It was a tough place. It was a hardship for them to do things God's way. And folks, God doesn't always work in straight lines. I don't know about you, but I've been discouraged sometimes because of things, the way things were going. Haven't you? And the Bible never says we'll never have trouble. The Bible tells us we will have trouble. The Bible never tells us that we won't be persecuted. Paul said those that live godly in Christ Jesus are persecuted or will be persecuted, which is probably why most Christians don't experience much. But the devil uses trouble, adversity and affliction and persecution to make you say it's not worth it. And that's exactly what Israel did in Numbers chapter 21. When they began or when they were much discouraged, their soul was much discouraged because of the way. It says then they began to speak against Moses and against God. Remember, folks, you overcome the devil by the word of your testimony and by the blood of Jesus. When they began to speak against Moses and to speak against God, now they've yielded to the devil and allowed his influence upon them through the adversity, the hard way that they were going to change what they would have. And the Bible says that fiery serpents came into the camp the hand of God's protection was lifted from the people, apparently. And many of the people died from these poisonous snake bites. They knew what the answer was. They knew what the cause was. They knew what the answer was. Because then they spoke up and they said to Moses, we've sinned. We spoke against God and against you. Now think about that, folks. They knew they weren't supposed to do that. But because of the difficulty of the way that they were taking... They did that which they knew they should not do. They did that which adds to their problems and adds to their trouble. And then they came to Moses to, help, to get his help in fixing the problem. Well, they were the problem. 
So in the same way, the devil tries to discourage us by the circumstances or the adversities or the troubles of our own lives. But to understand the mystery of the kingdom of God is to understand the deception that the enemy brings because of trouble and persecution and not yield to it, not yield to its influence over our lives to speak anything other than what God's word says. Jesus then talks about another kind of ground. Verse 18, And these are they which are sown among, among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. He mentions three things specifically. Now the first two things, characteristic of the stony ground, affliction and persecution, or we'll just call it trouble, hardship. Now he mentions three other things. He says, and remember these are all works of deception. He speaks of the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts or the desires for other things. All these are distracting issues, folks. Now, are there not cares of this world? Are there not things that we need to take care of and keep watch over in our lives? We've all got cares of this world. We've all deal, we all deal with the things that are necessary and important in this world. As parents, we have responsibilities to our kids. Those are cares of this world. See, cares of this world aren't just evil things. They might be good things. But in order to keep from being deceived by the cares of this world or the uh, deceitfulness of riches or the lust of other things, we have to keep things in balance. We have to keep things in right perspective. Folks, if the cares of this world ever keep you from learning and growing in the Word of God and confessing the Word of God, then you've been deceived into thinking that whatever those cares are, whatever those things are that we care about, are more important than the Word. And they never are. The deceitfulness of riches. Look at what's happened with this lockdown. Thank God the unemployment rate is dropping as more and more places open up and the economy starts coming back. But the deceitfulness of riches is very similar to the other that we just looked at. We all need money. But the deceitfulness of riches is to think that money is more important than you're standing on the word or taking hold of the word of God and confessing it in your lives the deceitfulness of riches is very simply just thinking that money is more important than the spiritual things or the truth of the word the lust of other things is just desire for something more than you have a desire for the word a lot of people are deceived again it comes back to the same thing What's more important in life? Folks, when you get down to it, there's nothing more important than the Word of God. Because there's nothing that's your answer more than the Word of God. The Word of God's the answer for each and every one of us, no matter what we're facing. 
Well, what can be more important than that? But so much of the world, certainly the church world included, are deceived into thinking these other things, these natural things around us are more important than the things of God. And as a result, they fail to take hold of the things that Jesus purchased for them. But these are they on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it, and bring forth some, bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Let's keep reading a little bit. And he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on the candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested. Neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. He's talking about the attitude of the heart. He's saying the things that are in your heart will really be revealed by God himself. Then he says in verse 23, If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Now why in the world is he talking about hearing? Well, we know in, from uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But remember, he's not just talking about, well, what he is talking about is the, the different types of ground, the different types of people. So when he says, if any man has ears to hear, he's talking about the truth or the importance of putting the word of God first place in your life. If any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, take heed what you hear. Get this, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. Let's take this apart a little bit. With what measure you meet. He's talking about what, what attention or importance you give to the word. You determine the measure of the truth of the word of God for yourself. Then it says, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. The word measure, uh, the second word that's, talk, that's used, pe measured, is talking about the blessings of God that you reap in your lives. He's saying the way you hear or what you interpret the, the truth of the word of God to be determines the measure of the blessings of God that you'll receive. Everything about this, the mystery of the kingdom of God is take heed what you hear. The mystery of the kingdom of God, that unknown part, is very simply that when we put the word of God first place in our lives, when we commit ourselves to his word completely, when we act on the word of God and confess it into our lives, that's how we exercise our authority on the earth. That's how we bring into being the blessings of God that Jesus purchased for us through his, uh, his sacrifice. You decide what you're going to have. You're the one that has authority. The devil can't keep you from having authority on the earth. He can't keep you from exercising authority on the earth. He can't keep you from receiving the true fullness of the blessings of God in your life. Based on the degree of attention and importance you place upon the word of God. And unto you that hear shall more be given. 
I want you to realize, folks, that when the Bible talks about giving attention to the Word, we all remember Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20. We should anyway. My son, attend unto my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. For they, my words, are life unto those that find them and health to all their flesh. There's a discovery process to the Word. And that discovery is made by attending to His Word, putting the Word of God first place in your life. By seeing yourself with what the Word says, not letting the Word depart from before your eyes. By inclining your ear, take heed, taking heed what you hear. That's the mystery of the kingdom of God. The mystery of the kingdom of God is, even though it doesn't look like it's the most important thing, the words that we speak, the words that are given to us and founded on and based on the truth of Jesus' sacrifice and what he accomplished through his death, burial, and resurrection. The hearing of that, the keeping of that, is the discovery process that brings the blessings of God to bear in your life. For he that hath, to him shall be given. Giving attention to the word multiplies the wisdom of God in your life and therefore the blessings of God that you receive. He that hath to him shall be given, and he that hath not from him shall be taken away even that which he hath. The consequence of failing to put the word of God first place brings you to a place or will bring you to a place where the favor of God is not even evident or seen upon you anymore. Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about wisdom being the principal thing. But then there's a, a section that talks about because you have rejected me. When somebody rejects the wisdom of God, then wisdom sits back and laughs at their trouble. That fits in real well with this. When somebody puts undue importance, first gives first place to something other than the word of God in their lives. They forfeited the wisdom that the word of God brings. And they will eat the fruit of their own way. That's when wisdom sits back and laughs and says, well, you could have had it differently, but you made your own choice in another direction. Verse 26, and he said, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground. Everything about the kingdom of God works on the principle of sowing seed. So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should spring up and grow up. He knoweth not how. How do you plant seed? By the way you speak. The words that you speak. How do you take care of the seed? You speak words of confirmation that the words that you sowed, the, the seed that you planted, is producing fruit. You don't even have to know how it works. Just know that it does. Now when we see that there are different types of ground or different types of people, 
that explains to us how two people that hear the same thing can come away with such different results. Turn with me to Mark chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 25. The story of the woman with the issue of blood. And a certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she had heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou, Who touched me? And he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. We see that this one woman got something that nobody else in the crowd got. She heard of Jesus. What did she hear? Again, Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. She heard something of Jesus, and the action she took indicates to us that she had heard that people were being healed by touching his clothes because that's what she had faith for. See, if she had heard that Jesus was baptizing people in water, then she might have had faith to be baptized. But that wouldn't necessarily have brought her faith to be healed. She had faith for healing, so she had to have heard about Jesus' healing. The method that she chose to act on, in my mind, gives us an indication that she must have heard that people were being healed by touching his clothes. Now, here's a question for you. Why is there such a big crowd around Jesus? He's not teaching. He's just simply walking down the road to Jairus' house. Why is there such a big crowd around Jesus? And why are they thronging him? Thronging him just simply means pressing on him from all sides, trying to touch him too. Why are so many people trying to touch Jesus? They must have heard something similar to what she heard. They must be there trying to get something from Jesus by reaching out and touching him. So then they have heard something very similar to what the woman with the issue of blood heard. But she got something and they didn't. Now what made the difference between what she heard and the action she took and the results she got from what the others heard, acted on, and God. Well, everybody else in the crowd must be reaching out to touch Jesus to see what would happen or hoping that something would happen. But she touched him believing something had or would already take place as soon as she touched him. What made the difference in the two groups, of, or her as an individual and the group of people that are thronging Jesus to touch him? Why is there such a big difference in results? She didn't have something special that they had 
or didn't have. They must have heard Jesus had done great things just as much as the woman with the issue of blood had or had heard. But she's the only one in the crowd that gets anything. She's the only one that's good ground in this whole crowd of people. We know that the rest of the crowd wouldn't have been wayside type of people because if they'd been people by the wayside in Jesus' parable, they wouldn't have come to him to touch him. She's the only one that gets anything because she's the only one that touches him in faith. And Jesus immediately recognizes the difference between this one person and everybody else in the crowd. Now, was it not God's will for the rest of the crowd to get something from God too? You can't tell me that the woman with the issue of blood is the only sick person in that group. If that would be the case, that would be the only time where Jesus came to a group and there was only one sick person. So you've got people that may have been in just as dire situation, just as dire consequences, just as serious a disease as the woman with issue of blood. They did the same act or took the same action that she took, but didn't get any results. Because the reason that she took the action she did was because of something that she believed on the inside of her. They had the same opportunity to believe. They've had just as much opportunity to hear and believe and to develop faith in their results as she has. But she's the only one that gets anything. She's the only one that gets anything. She's the only one that put the attendant on the word that she heard to such a degree as to be the catalyst for that power being made manifest in her body. I mentioned, uh, I think it was last week, here recently, I was meditating on some things about this parable. Not really praying about anything, but I, as I will normally do, I'll wind up talking to God about stuff as questions come to me. And I was thinking about people in our church over the years. People that have heard the same truth, sat side by side with somebody else and, and considering the different results that they got. People in the same service, hearing the same teaching, and get different results. And I said something out loud to the Lord about it, and instantly, I really wasn't asking a question, but instantly the Lord said to me, critical thinking. Critical thinking. Now, folks, critical thinking is, divine, is defined in our modern world as questioning or asking questions about things. And that certainly is true. But the real critical thinking that brought results to people in Jesus' ministry was quite simply people that would think in such a manner as to include themselves as recipients of what Jesus came to minister. That's the difference in the woman with the issue of blood and the rest of the people in this crowd. She takes it for herself. She begins to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be whole. 
That must have been what she heard. And so she personalized it. Just as I've heard of other people touching his clothes and they were made whole, if I can touch his clothes, I'll be made whole. And that's what she put her faith on. Other people had gotten the same results. Why couldn't she? So she reached out and touched his garment. And instantly the flow of blood stopped. It dried up in her body. Jesus immediately knows somebody's different in this crowd from everybody else. So he stops. When Jesus asks who touched him, the disciples are looking at the crowd, and to them, everybody looks the same. And so they're concerned about finding somebody that touched Jesus. Why does he even want that to know that information for? But Jesus just waits. He knows he's going to see a difference in somebody. So he just halts his progress and looks around. And the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And Jesus said, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Your faith has made you whole. Now, I want you to look at it from a different position. Instead of saying, your daughter, your faith has made you whole, could Jesus not have easily said, daughter, the exercise of your authority has made you whole? She's the one that has authority where her body is concerned, just like everybody else in that crowd has authority over themselves and over their bodies. Jesus didn't just walk through the crowd and everybody that touched him was healed. So we can't say it's due to his authority. We can't say the results that the woman with the issue of blood got was due to Jesus' authority. She exercised authority. How'd she do it? Well, she heard of Jesus, believed what she heard, and began to say, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. And folks, she got exactly what she said. This is the exercise of her authority. Now remember what we read over in Re uh, Revelation chapter 12. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. They overcame the devil in his deception by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's what she did. She wasn't able to put her faith in the blood of the Lamb yet because Jesus hadn't been to the cross. But she exercises her authority by the things that she said. Her testimony brought her healing. Her testimony, not just the power of God. We know the power of God did the work. But it was her words that triggered the power of God. Her words were the catalyst for the power of God to come into her and to heal her flesh. This is her exercising her authority over sickness and disease. Just like God said that it would. She's exercising her authority by saying, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. The contrast of this might be the guy in John chapter 5, the man at the pool of Bethesda. You remember the story how the angel would appear at certain times, random times, and stir the water. And the first one that got into the water after the angel had troubled the water was made whole of whatever disease or sickness they had. Jesus goes and he looks for faith. First thing that he looks for. 
he asked the man, wilt thou be made holy? He's giving him a chance to exercise authority through his words. But this guy wasn't there. He starts complaining about how he can't be whole, how he can't receive his healing. He says, I don't have anybody that's strong enough to put me in the water when the water is troubled. Somebody always beats me to the water. Well, we know that it wasn't more than just the first one in that God healed. Because the second time, the second or the third or whoever, they didn't get anything, only the first. So Jesus looks for the exercise of authority. He's searching for faith. But the man doesn't have any. Now thank God that the mercy of God was extended toward him and the Holy Ghost manifested a gift of healing in his, in his body or on his behalf. But Jesus doesn't stand there and heal everybody else that's around. He immediately conveys himself away. He turns and leaves the crowd before anybody knows that he's done anything. Now it's good to know that the Holy Ghost does sometimes initiate things on his own. Just to show God's goodness and God's healing mercy. But look at the difference between the woman with the issue of blood. She exercises her authority by saying, since we've heard Jesus is healing the sick, if I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. The man at the pool of Bethesda would lay there for the rest of his life and die in that place. Because he exercised no authority to re receive his healing. Look with me to Matthew chapter 14. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 15. Beginning in verse 21, Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. Anytime somebody uses that phrase, son of David, it means that they're recognizing and acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. They believe that he's the Christ. So she says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not meat or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from her master's table. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it, unto even, be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Jesus identifies that this woman had great faith. Now there's some things that we should probably add to the story of the woman with the issue of blood before we make the comparison here. And that is, the woman with the issue of blood had a condition that was treated in the same way by the law of Moses as leprosy. Leprosy was the great killer of mankind. And so when someone had a communicable disease like this woman with issue of blood or like somebody that had leprosy, they were not allowed to go in and mix and mingle among the people. 
And you would readily understand that because it was so highly contagious. So the law dictated for the woman with the issue of blood that if she came in a crowd like the one that she came in as described in Mark chapter 5, she would be required by law to cry out that she was in that vicinity to warn the people of her contagious disease. Now, the people could do one of two things. People could either get out of their way and go somewhere else to avoid contact with them. Or they could throw rocks at the one making the claim or the one that had the contagious disease and chase them away. She must have expected that people would throw rocks at her and chase her away or else she could have easily followed the law of Moses and just got to Jesus trusting that the people would give her room to get to it. So there's a care of the world involved here. A care of the world that she had to make a decision about. Is she going to break the law of Moses and refuse to cry out and let people know she's coming? Or is she going to push through the crowd and get to Jesus because of what she believes? Folks, every situation we come in, every adversity we face, we face a question. We have a decision to make. Are we either going to do what the Word says or are we going to let some other care of this world or some other reason keep us from doing what the Word says? She could have yielded to the pressure of society based on the law of Moses and would probably have failed to receive her healing. She would probably have not been able to get close enough to Jesus to touch him. And so what she had heard would bear no fruit in her life. She would have been like the, the thorny ground where the blessing of God got choked out because of the rules of society. This woman has something very different. The Syrophoenician woman in, Mark, in Matthew chapter 15 is in a different situation altogether. Here's a hardship that's being placed on her, and she has the opportunity to look at Jesus as the one that's bringing the hardship upon her. In both cases, they're facing something that has the potential to rob them of the blessing of God of regarding healing for their bodies. Jesus seems to be the one that's bringing the affliction or adversity to her. But what makes this story such a great story for us is to recognize and to see from her example that she refused to let anything get in her way. She refused to let any hardship, any difficulty stop her from having what she knows belongs to her, but again, because she believes Jesus is the Christ. When Jesus first respond, or failed to respond to her, she could have given up. She could have said, well, here I come to him and he won't even answer me. But she wouldn't give up. 
She would not let any circumstance, she would not let any hardship keep her from what she believed, rightly believed, to be the truth of the healing mercy of God. So she comes to Jesus to begin with, and Jesus won't even talk to her. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she cries after us. Notice Jesus didn't say get rid of her. Jesus didn't tell the disciples to get rid of her. The disciples come to her and saying, she won't leave. What would you have done? She believes Jesus is the Messiah. And she comes to Jesus. I'm sure she's heard enough about Jesus to base her belief that he's the Christ. She has to have heard about healing miracles and different things that have taken place in his ministry. Otherwise, why would she believe that he was the Messiah? We don't know exactly what all she heard, but she had to hear something regarding the power of God, regarding the healing power of God, most probably, to put her in a place to believe that he was the Christ. So Jesus refuses to answer her, and she stands her ground. She will not leave. Then Jesus does answer the disciples and says, where I'm sure she can hear it within hearing distance of her, he says, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What's she going to do with that? She's basically been told by Jesus that you're not a candidate for that. This is power that's available to the Jews and the Jews only. Then she came and worshipped him saying, Lord, help me. What would you have done in that situation? I know there are a lot of times and a lot of situations where people will give up on whatever they're believing God for because they get discouraged or, or um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? That's what that side says. What about you? She gets disappointed by what Jesus says or the way that she deal, he deals with her. But instead of getting mad and walking away saying, well, that's how those ministry, traveling ministers are like, she comes to him and falls down before him and worships him. Folks, she recognizes something. There's something about this to where she recognizes that God has such mercy on mankind that healing belongs to her. Now, in the strictest sense, it really doesn't. Jesus says it's not meat or right or appropriate to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs. He's saying it's not right to take the healing that belongs to the Jews and let the Gentiles have it. Now, we know that's God's original plan. We know that because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives, we're redeemed from the curse of the law so that the blessing of Abraham would come on us. That's what this is. The healing power of God is the blessing of Abraham. 
And so God's original plan was that not only would the Jews receive the power of God unto healing through salvation, but that also the Gentiles would come in too. So really, her situation is just timing. As a Gentile, she's asking for something that at that point in time only belonged to the Jews. But because the character and the nature of God and His mercy is such, even though she's ahead of her time, because she comes and worships Him, because she falls down before Him and worships Him, Jesus still has a rebuttal for her. It's not right to take the children's bread, the healing that you seek, and cast it to dogs. She still won't turn loose. She won't let go. She's convinced that no matter what trouble comes her way, no matter what anybody says about her one way or the other, she's, concerned, she's convinced that Jesus is the Christ, and therefore God will hear her prayer. So she says, truth, Lord. Yet the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus said, daughter, great is your faith. Be it unto you even as you will. So critical thinking, the way that I'm referring to it, is an understanding of the character and the nature of God to such a degree that you don't let anything that the devil throws in your way keep you from taking hold of what the Bible says belongs to you. Let me show you one other scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll close with this. Paul is talking to Timothy and giving him some ministry instruction. I'm going to start in verse 20. It says, but in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and of earth, and some to honor and some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace, with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender stripes. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Instructing those that oppose themselves. What's he talking about? He's talking about people that are held captive at the devil's will because they're exercising their authority against themselves rather than for their own good. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. How does the devil take you captive or take anybody captive at his will? Through deception. By influencing, whether it's through wrong doctrines, wrong teaching, or wrong associations, or whatever, by influencing someone to speak words of authority against their own well-being. He's telling Timothy that you're going to have to get a hold of some people, not with an arrogant I told you so attitude, 
but to convince them to change the way that they speak so that they may recover themselves out of the things that the devil has brought into their lives and instead step over into the kingdom of God where things are in, in your life here on the earth like they are or will be in heaven. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. Makes me think of Jonah. After Jonah was swallowed by the fish, he decided that maybe he ought to make things right with God. And so he says, from the belly of the fish, he cries out to God and then says this about his circumstance. He speaks a principle that applies to himself too. He said, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercies. He's calling the fish that he's in a lying vanity. He knows where he's headed. He's headed to fulfill God's plan to go to Nineveh. And in the middle of this fish, the belly of this fish, and whatever the circumstances are concerning this fish, I always envision it as some giant whale type thing where he's got plenty of room to move around. But it could be something that he's in such close, cramped quarters that in and of itself might scare some people to death. If he's claustrophobic, this could be a problem. But he says, they that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. He's telling us that no matter what situation we are in or anybody else is ever in, the mercy of God is available to them. But if they get their eyes on the circumstances, I think this would uh, qualify as affliction. So he's got a, a choice to make too, just like the rest of us. What does this fish mean to him? As far as he's concerned, it's a lying vanity. It's a physical reality, but it's a lying vanity because it robs him of experiencing the blessing of God for his life. That's the same situation we find ourselves in, folks, every day of our lives. Every day something comes up where we're going to have to make a decision based on our critical thinking that either takes sides with God's word against the work of the devil or accepts the work of the devil into their own lives as being just the way things are. That's what I mean when I talk about critical thinking. The determination, the commitment to ignore any circumstance, any hardship, any affliction, any persecution to keep God's word and the blessings that Jesus purchased for us from being ours. It's a refusal to let the circumstances of life or the need for money or other things, some things that might be good, other things that might not be good, but a refusal to let those things take first place in our lives 
to contradict or to counteract the truth of God's word. And that's a fight that we fight every day on the earth. Thank God through the strength of God, the salvation that belongs to us through the work of Jesus, and the knowledge of the kingdom of God, God's will for us, we can make the right choice every time. Every word you say is the exercise of your authority in the earth. Imagine it like this. If Jesus appeared in front of us, right there, where all of us could see him, and turned around and said, I have a message from the Almighty God. From this moment forward, every word you say will come to pass. What would that do to you? For me, I'd seem to think, well, it sure was good to see Jesus, but I already knew that. But if it would change anything about what you're saying, then change what you're saying. Because even if Jesus did appear, his appearance would not be more real. His appearance would not be more true. His appearance would not be more eternal in its promise than the word of God we already have. Let's pray. Father, we bless your holy name. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we have found your word. And because we have found your word, we keep it. We recognize, Lord, that we're governed by our words. We recognize that every word that we speak is the exercise of our authority in the earth. So we determine that we will speak only what your word says. We determine that we will speak only the truth of the word of God. We commit ourselves to you, Father, that no matter what's going on around us, no matter if the whole world turns upside down, we shall hold fast to the confession of your word. Our words will speak only your will, only the truth that we have found in your word. And we will be of those that even the scripture says have overcome the devil by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Holy Spirit, we would ask that you would solidify these things in our hearts as we continue to water these truths, this seed that we planted through meditating in the word of God. We thank you, Father, that our words really do come to pass and that we will have what we say. So we say we're the healed of God. We say that your righteousness is ours. We say that you supply all of our needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. We say 
that the power of God resides within us to put us over and to deliver us in every situation. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody that agrees with that, say amen. 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 Praise the Lord. Well, let's all stand together. Let's just lift our hands and worship God one more time. We magnify you, Holy Father. We bless you, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you, Father, that we shall enjoy victory, great victory in these perilous times. We declare that the power of God will keep us in Jesus' name. We thank you, Father, for revealing opportunities to us in these perilous times so that we might walk in victory that is seen and known on every hand. In Jesus' precious name, we bless you, Father. We worship you. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to have a short time of prayer as we have been doing for the last weeks. If you can stay with us, we invite you to do so. If not, the rear doors are open for you.